morning to you. Perhaps you've heard the one about the pastor who, during children's church, asked the kids, how do you get to heaven? And uh, he asked, you know, if I sold my house and all of its contents and I gave all the money to the church, would, would that get me into heaven? And the kids all kind of scream back as they do in children's church, no! <laughs> and he said, okay, if, uh, if I uh, cleaned the church every day, if I mowed the yard all summer, if I shoveled all the snow all winter, would, would that get me into heaven? And the kids said, no! So he said, well, what if I was kind to animals? What if I uh, gave candy to all the children? Would that get me into heaven? And again, the kids said, no! And so he said, well, how can I get into heaven? And a four-year-old shouted out, you got to be dead! <laughs> well, that's uh, children's church. That's partly right, this side of the rapture, but it's missing one really important piece, isn't it? Uh, to get into heaven, you have to have faith in Jesus Christ. Now, if you put your faith in Jesus, then when you die, you do go to heaven. Now, friends, you don't have to be four to be uh, sort of right, kind of right, almost right, or entirely incorrect when it comes to eternal realities. Now, being a, just a bit off on important matters can have devastating consequences. If a pilot is just a few degrees off, he can end up in Austin instead of Boston. And just recently, we had a plane that was supposed to go to Germany land in Scotland. So... How much more careful must we be not to be off by even one degree in God's recipe as it pertains to our eternal destiny? It is of eternal importance that we carefully distinguish between man's religion and God's revelation. It is of eternal importance that we distinguish between man's religion and God's revelation when it pertains to our salvation. Proverbs tells us there's a way that seems right unto man, but in the end it leads to death. And so with this in mind, I'd like for you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians 1.17. 1 Corinthians 1.17, if you don't have a Bible with you, reach out and grab the blue pew Bible in front of you. 1 Corinthians 1.17 should be on page 12.10. As you turn in the word of the Lord, let's turn to that Lord in prayer. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you today and we ask that you would speak to us from your holy word. We have many ideas when it comes to morality. We have many ideas when it comes to eternity. We have many ideas of how you are and how coming to you ought to work. But you are the author and perfecter of our faith. You are the one true God. You are our creator. You are the maker of the heavens and the earth. And you are the only one that knows how to bring us unto yourself. And so I pray today the contrast would be clear between man's religion that is enticing and God's revelation that is true. And I pray that you would use your spirit to nudge us, to woo us, to call us, to draw us, to pull us to truth, for the truth will set us free. We pray this in the wonderful name of Jesus, whom we love. Amen. So the Word of God says in 1 Corinthians, beginning at verse 17 of chapter 1, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. 
For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Now where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since the wisdom of God, for since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks demand wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to the Jews, and, and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both the Jews and the Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God, and because of Him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. So that, it, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now today, when the world speaks of wisdom, and our passage speaks of it extensively, when the world speaks of wisdom, it kind of has the idea of some combination of intuition and insight and, and street smarts. But in ancient Corinth, uh, wisdom was a public philosophy. It was a well-articulated worldview that attempted to make sense of life and it ordered the choices and values and priorities of those who adopted the particular school of philosophy that was advocated. So, so let's say you had a hedonistic bent. Well, there was a philosophy that said, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. And that became their life's alibi to get by. Uh, if you had more of a stiff upper lip kind of personality, then there were the Stoics, and, and you would drift over to them. There was a philosophy for virtually every mentality. And that's the thing with man's wisdom. It's inevitably and inextricably man-centered. This brings us to the first point on your outlines today. Your first point is this. It's a little bit of a mouthful, but we'll unpack it if you're lost. Man's religion is anthropocentric. I'll explain that in a minute. But God's revelation is theocentric. It is Christocentric. Indeed, it is cross-centric. I'll say that again. Man's religion is anthropocentric. But God's revelation is theocentric. It is Christocentric. It is, indeed, cross-centric. I want you to look at the difference in emphasis between man's religion and God's revelation starting at the very first verse of our passage, starting at verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, 
lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. You see, man's religion is man-centered. And the $5 word for that is anthropocentric. From the Greek word for man, anthropos. Anthropocentric, man-centered. But God's revelation is theocentric. It's from the Greek word for God, theos. So theocentric, God-centered. Anthropocentric, man-centered. Man's religion is man-centered. God's revelation is God-centered. Our passage says it is the power of God. It is the wisdom of God. It pleases God. Do you see how God-centered it is? Now, God's revelation reaches its culmination in the incarnation. The book of Hebrews makes that clear in its first two verses. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our forefathers through all those Old Testament prophets. Verse 2, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. You see, God's revelation is so, is so Christocentric, Jesus-centric, and cross-centric that Paul will write in our next chapter in Corinthians. He will write this. When I came to you, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Now listen to how our passage today unambiguously is Christocentric and cross-centric. Verse 17, For Christ! did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For Jews demand signs and Greeks wisdom, but we preach Christ, a stumbling block to the Jews, folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God, and Christ is the wisdom of God. You see, man's religion is man-centered. It, it relies hopelessly on human eloquence and our dim perception of whatever is culturally relevant. That's what man's religion always steers to, human eloquence and our dim perspective of of cultural relevance. But God's revelation takes our eyes off of us and onto Jesus, which brings us to point two today. Man's religion stresses human erudition, eloquence, the ability to speak. Man's religion stresses human erudition, but God's revelation stresses the crucifixion. There's a reason. All around the world, when you find a church, what's on the top of that church? It's a cross. The symbol of Christianity is what? A cross. There's a reason for that. Because while man's revelation stresses human erudition, God's revelation stresses the crucifixion. Look at verse 17 again. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Okay, what is the gospel? Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15. He says this is the gospel. That Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. And that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day, in accordance with the Scriptures. 
Friends, the gospel is not based on human erudition. It is based on Christ's crucifixion. Now the Greeks, the Greeks were intoxicated. They were infatuated with fine-sounding argumentation. Uh, to them, the gospel preacher with his blunt message of repentance, he seemed an uncultured figure. Someone to be laughed at, not someone to be listened to. But Paul was not preaching for the Corinthians' ovation. He was preaching for their salvation. Paul knew that the message of the, Christ, of the cross would divide the audience instantly. Verse 18, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Verse 18 tells us that the gospel of Jesus Christ and Him crucified will divide the room into two camps. There are those who are in the process of perishing, and there are those who are in the process of being saved. Friends, like it or not, Believe it or not, God's Word declares that there are some on a road to perdition and there are some on a road to salvation. And friends, like it or not, believe it or not, the Bible is clear that the fork in the road between perdition and salvation is what you do with Christ and the cross. If you consider Christ and His cross dross, you will remain lost. But if you cherish the old rugged cross, you will exchange it one day for a crown. How we respond to the gospel determines whether we shall experience immortal horrors or everlasting splendors, as C.S. Lewis termed the phrase. And so good preaching, my friends, rests not on rhetorical eloquence nor academic brilliance. It rests on Jesus and what He's done for us. That's good preaching. Specifically, what has Jesus done for us? The victory that Jesus secured by dying substitutionally for us as sinners on the cross. Listen to verse 19. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. You want man's religion? It will not get you to God. God is thwarting that. Uh, where is the one who is wise? Who thinks he's wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not go, know God through this wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks demand wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Greeks. I want you to understand what Paul is and what Paul is not saying here. Paul is not saying, well, don't be persuasive in your preaching. Don't be persuasive when you proclaim the gospel. Some people read this and they think that. That's not what the Bible's teaching. I can prove that. I'd like for you to turn with me for just a moment to Acts 18. It's to the left of 1 Corinthians. Acts 18 is on page 1179 of the Blue Pew Bibles. Page 1179, Acts 18. The Bible is not against persuasion. In fact, it calls the preacher to it. In Acts chapter 18, beginning at verse 1, after this, Paul left Athens and he went to Corinth, right here where we're talking about, Corinth. Verse 2, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. 
And when he went to see them, because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks to trust in Jesus. Paul is not against persuasion. Paul is not even against the use of rhetoric in bringing about that persuasion. One scholar rightly noted that 1 Corinthians is perhaps the most rhetorically powerful and beautiful of all of Paul's letters. Uh, Paul peppers this letter with a variety of intentional rhetorical devices. There is irony, there's hyperbole, there's sarcasm, there's rhetorical questions, there's alliteration, there's personification, there's repetition, there's double meaning, there's picturesque word choices. He draws on the the fact that the ancient city of Rome was burned to the ground. He draws on that burning imagery in chapter 3. Paul is using rhetoric. He's not against rhetoric. Paul's attack is not at the use of rhetoric. It's the misuse of rhetoric. The misuse of rhetoric. Uh, Paul always employs rhetoric as his servant and never as his master. But man's religion relies on rhetoric, not truth. And that brings us to point three today, friends. Man's religion needs skilled orators. God's revelation requires faithful preachers. Man's religion requires uh, uh, skilled orators, but, but God's... Revelation simply needs faithful preachers. Verse 20, who is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. And it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Now, if you look at verse 20, verse 20 starts with a general idea. The one who is wise, general term. And then he gives two specifics. The specific wise man of the Jew, the specific wise man of the Gentile. The scribe is the Jewish wise man, and the debater is the Greek wise man. The scribe is the Jewish manifestation of wisdom's personification. The scribe is a technical term for the Jewish scholar who's trained to handle the law and whose nuanced interpretation was intended to answer all. Now, the debater of this age was the Greek incarnation of wisdom's personification. The debater of this age is a Greek rhetorician who tried to solve all of life's problems by logic and debate. But friends, you don't need to be a great speaker with a great big vocabulary to share the gospel effectively. The persuasive power is in the story, not in the storyteller. Which is why Romans 1.16 reminds us to not be ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. What saves people? God saves people. Through what? Through the gospel. The preacher just needs to be faithful and prayerful and get out of the way. Nowhere in Scripture, my friends, nowhere in Scripture does God ever promise to inspire the preacher or his sermon. But 1 Timothy 3.16 promises all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching and rebuke and uh, correction so the training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work. So what is Paul saying and what is he not saying? Well, Paul is not saying don't prepare your messages carefully. Paul was saying don't alter the message. Don't alter the message so that it sells better to the audience. 
Now, friends, I want you to understand this. Listen to this very clearly. Someone absolutely can preach the gospel better than me, but nobody can preach a better gospel than me. There are absolutely those who preach the gospel better than me, but there's no one that can preach a better gospel than me. And why is that? Because there's only one saving gospel. And what is true for me is true for you. And when you're at your office or the dentist's office and you are the one sharing the gospel and you go, but Lord, who am I? And the answer is, you are the servant of the Lord entrusted with the message of the King and you faithfully share that message and you prayerfully give that message and you leave the results up to God. Because it is never the messenger, it is always the message. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. So the plain preaching of a crucified Christ is more powerful, friends, than all of the oratory, eloquence, and philosophical brilliance of this fallen world. And you need to know that. Because the church is getting confused and running to lesser things. Uh, In the simple preaching of the gospel, God is glorified, not the gospel messenger. In the simple preaching of the gospel, God is glorified, and not the preacher. Let me show you what I mean. Years ago, years ago, there's nothing new under the sun. There was a preacher named uh, Harry Ironside. You remember him? Famous preacher, H.A. Ironside. You got commentaries some of you have in your libraries of him. And he told the story of an English country gentleman who uh, traveled outside of the country to London to hear some of the great preachers of the day. And he wrote this letter to his wife. He wrote home to his wife and he said, Last Sunday, I went in the morning to hear Dr. So-and-so. I won't tell you who it was. And he named one of the most eloquent men occupying a pulpit in London of that day. And in the evening, I went to the Metropolitan Tabernacle to listen to Mr. Spurgeon. And he writes to his wife, I was greatly impressed by both of them. Dr. So-and-so is certainly a great preacher. But Mr. Spurgeon has a great Savior. Do you see the difference, friends? Mr. Spurgeon had a great Savior. Mr. Spurgeon had a great Savior. We don't need to be more than we have to be. We just need to be faithful to the gospel. Uh, The the Evangelical Free Church is blessed uh, with a man. He's our most eminent living scholar. He's a man named D.A. Carson. He teaches at Trinity. He's taught there virtually his entire ministry career. And Carson, in his commentary on this passage, says something so profound that I'm going to quote it. It's a little lengthy. Please listen in. D.A. Carson says this. At the moment, books are pouring off the presses telling us how to plan for success how vision consists in clearly articulating our our ministry goals, how how the knowledge of detailed profiles of our communities, well, that constitutes what will become successful outreach. Carson says, I'm not for a moment suggesting there's nothing to be learned from such studies, but after a while, one may be perhaps excused for marveling at how many churches were planted by Paul and Whitfield and Wesley without enjoying those advantages. Of course, all of us need to understand the people to whom we minister, and all of us can benefit from small doses of such literature, but massive doses sooner or later dilute the gospel. Ever so subtly, we start to think that success is more critically dependent on thoughtful sociological analysis than on the gospel of Jesus. 
Barna becomes more important than the Bible. We depend on our plans and our programs and our vision statements, but somewhere along the way, we've succumbed to the temptation to displace the foolishness of the cross with the wisdom of strategic planning. He goes on to say, again, I insist my position is not a thinly veiled plea for obscurantism, for a seat-of-the-pants ministry that plans nothing. It's not what Carson's saying. He says this, Rather, I fear that the cross, without ever being disowned, is constantly in danger of being dismissed from the central place it must enjoy by relatively peripheral insights that begin to take on too much weight in God's church. Friends, do you know that whatever, whenever the periphery is in danger of displacing the center, we are not very far removed from idolatry. Is that not true? Whenever the periphery, however good it is, begins to displace the center, we are not far from idolatry. That brings us to our fourth point today. Our fourth point today. Man's religion seeks what we crave, but God's revelation offers what Christ gave. Man's religion always focuses on what we want, what we crave, but God's revelation focuses on what Christ gave. Look at verse 22. What did they crave? The Jews demand signs, and the Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The Jews wanted to be convinced miraculously The Greeks wanted to be convinced mentally. And they both looked to the cross. And they walked away, tragically. The Jews sought signs. They sought signs on their terms. Let me ask you a question, friend. Did Jesus give no sign? Did Jesus give no sign? Listen. One writer noted, for three and a half years, the Son of God walked the length and breadth of the Holy Land. He he healed their sick. He raised their dead. He cleansed their lepers. He liberated their demoniacs. He walked upon the waves. He stilled the storm. He fed the hungry multitudes. And he transformed ruined lives again and again and again. And yet they still demanded a sign. And when he was born, he put a new star in the heavens. And when he died, he put out the sun. And they still insisted, we want a, a sign. And then he took them back to the sign of Jonah. And then on the third day, he resurrected, just as he predicted. And then his church was born. And at Pentecost, the church, the Bible says, was doing signs and wonders. And the Jews ignored those signs, and they persecuted God's church as vehemently as they had persecuted its master, Jesus. So much for being convinced by signs. And the Greeks sought wisdom. They sought wisdom on their terms, what they thought was wise. Uh, If you look at the Greek gods, the Greek gods were heroes who slayed others. There was no humble servant dying in ignominy, forsaken upon a tree. Their gods put Odysseus through a great Iliad of an odyssey. That's for you. But the one true God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. There couldn't be more difference between the hero and the truly heroic. 
The proclamation of a crucified Savior is nonsense to unbelievers. No orator in antiquity ever spoke eloquently about a man dying on the cross. Not one. What the world finds impressive and irresistible are these sensory spectacles, and that is not what Jesus offers on the cross. Friends, the fly in our religious soup is the cross, is it not? It's the scandal the Jews could not handle. For they knew in Deuteronomy 21-23 that cursed is he hung upon a tree. And so they wanted signs that were apocalyptic and triumphalistic in character. And instead they got the wisdom of God. For Christ took our curse by volunteering to be accursed upon a tree for you and me. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God through him. And this isn't new wisdom. This was forgotten wisdom. It was right there in their own Bible, in the middle of their own Bible, in Isaiah 53. The Bible, their Bible, says this. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon Him, and by His wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray, and each of us has turned his own way, and the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Like the ancient Greeks in Paul's day, modern man tragically rejects the saving gospel, preferring that we somehow instead save ourselves. And it leads one writer to note this. Listen carefully, friends. Our educational institutions preach humanism, not holiness. They eulogize cleverness, not Calvary. Faced with the horrendous ills of a fallen world, man looks to science, to technology, to sociology, to psychology, to philosophy, to education, to business, to politics, even to the occult. And it never occurs to us to look to the cross. The God's answer is Christ. On the cross. The message of Christ on the cross releases the very power of God into human lives. It's been doing it for 2,000 years, every place they've heard about it. And friends, the, the message of Christ on the cross makes crooked men straight, it makes drunk men sober, it makes prolificate people pure, it makes the weak strong. Amen? Now, this gospel, my friends, is for the needy not the mighty. This gospel is for the humble, not the haughty. This gospel is for redeeming sinners, not rewarding winners. And this is why the gospel is scandal. This is why the gospel is foolishness to the perishing and yet the power of God and the wisdom of God to those who believe. And that brings us to our final point today. And this is the great point of, of digression between man's false religion and God's true revelation. Point five today is this. Man's religion looks to our abilities. Man's religion looks to our abilities. 
God's revelation reminds us of Christ's ability and our utter inadequacy. That's the difference between every religion on earth and the saving gospel. Every religion on earth is you've got to clean yourself up and earn your way up and earn your way to God and make your way to God. They look to our abilities and the gospel says, no, 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 no. Look to Christ's ability and understand your utter inadequacy. Either you need to be saved or you can save yourself, but both are not true. Listen again to verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. And before you were saved, not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. Verse 27, that's not an accident. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame what is wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Friends, how wicked are we? How wicked are we? We like to tell ourselves we're not that bad. The Bible has a different opinion. How wicked are we? We are so wicked that the only solution to our pollution is for the sinless, spotless Son of God to die for our sins. You need to get that through your mind. You need to humble yourself and kneel before the cross of Christ. You know, religion says do. God says it's been done. Religion says toil. God says trust. Religion says behave. God says believe. Religion says achieve. God says accept. Listen to how the Scripture describes being and becoming a Christian. Look at verse 30 again, friend. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus. Being a Christian is to be in Christ Christianity is union with the God-man, Jesus Christ. It is not the merits we bring to Christ. It is simply coming to Christ and letting His merits come upon us. Verse 30, because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus. It's Christ's work on the cross that atones for us. It can never be our works that make us acceptable before a holy God. Verse 30 and 31 make it as clear (laughs) as possible that while man's religion looks to our abilities, God's revelation points to Christ's ability and our own utter inadequacy. The Bible says, and because of Him you were in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. I'd encourage you to circle those three words. Jesus is the Christian's righteousness, his sanctification, and his redemption. So that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the the Lord. Without the righteousness of Jesus Christ, the Bible says our sins would still be as scarlet, but he makes them white as snow. Verse 30 goes on to say, and because of him you're in Christ Jesus who became the wisdom of God, righteousness and sanctification. Jesus is not just our righteousness, he's also our sanctification. Christ is our sanctification. Without Jesus, we would be forever locked in our proclivity towards iniquity. But Christ gives us new life and a new nature which gives us new desires, desires to please God. Uh, Through His Spirit, God gives us new strength to walk in newness of life because He is the source of this new life. He is the source of our sanctification. 
Verse 30, And because of Him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Jesus is our redemption. We are not able to save ourselves, friends. Christ must rescue us. Now that is the point of 1 Peter 3.18. Why don't you write 1 Peter 3.18 next to verse 30. 1 Peter 3.18 says this, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. Christ suffered that we might be brought right before God. The gospel rubs so many people the wrong way because it rubs against our wretched self-centeredness and our foolish self-reliance. For those who exalt self, the cross is absurd and it must be abhorred. But are those, for those who are willing not to think too highly of themselves, but rather as they ought, the gospel becomes the power of God unto salvation. If you are looking to religion to save you, you are looking in the wrong direction. Now some folks say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. When I meet God, I'm going to tell him I was no serial killer, I was no monster, I was no Adolf Hitler. I'm sure we can work something out. I'm a pretty decent fellow. But friends, in our passage today, God's word is very clear. It's never going to be self-confident disputation, but self-effacing faith that will bring you to heaven. Listen again. I want you to turn to another passage. I want you to turn to Luke 18. Luke 18, verse 9. It's on page 115. Luke 18, page 115. Luke 18, verse 9, page 115. It is never self-confident disputation, but self-effacing faith that brings us to heaven. Luke 18, 9. Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt because of it. Jesus said, two men went into the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other was a tax collector. That means one everyone thought was wonderful and the other one everyone thought was awful. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off in the temple, would not even lift his eyes up to heaven in shame. But he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Thus says the Lord Jesus. Here's the question I have for you. Have you humbled yourself before the mercy and merits of Jesus Christ? How do you do that? Jesus' next statements answer that. Look at Luke 18, 15. Luke 18, 15. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them, and the disciples saw it. They rebuked those people. But Jesus called to him, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for such as belongs to the kingdom of God. So how do you get in the kingdom of God? Verse 17. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child 
shall not enter into it. So here's my question for you. It isn't how often do you go to church and how much do you serve? How much do you give? The Pharisees did all that. And it didn't help them. The question is, have you reached out to Jesus in childlike faith? Have you bowed your knee to King Jesus? Because one day you will. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. You can do that now and make eternal peace with God, or you can do that later by force. But you will do that. In Acts 16, there was a very strong man. Powerful, brave, former soldier. And he had temporal authority. And yet he learned in Acts 16 that salvation comes not through our strength, but through admitting our weakness. Not through scaling some wall of religious works, but by surrendering all to Christ, who already did all that work. To Telestai, it is finished. And so Acts 16, Acts 16 tells the humble cry of this formerly strong man. He simply said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And this is what they said. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Have you done that? Would you like to do that? If so, I want to invite you right here, right now, with every head bowed, every eye closed, just you and the Lord. Don't worry about anybody else. The Bible says in Romans 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, if you're ready to make Jesus Lord of your life, He's not holy, heavenly fire insurance. He wants to be God. If you're willing to confess with your mouth, Jesus is my Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the Scripture says, everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If that's what you would like to do today, we can pray. Your prayer can be expressed like this. It isn't the magical incantation of the wording, it's the sincere desires of your heart today. Very simply, you can say something like this in your heart right now. Father, forgive me, for I am a sinner, and I need a Savior. And I know that Jesus is the sole solution to my soul's pollution. And I ask that the blood of Jesus would make me white as snow that you'd take my account from guilty deficit to eternal credit through the infinite righteousness of Jesus. Help me to live for Jesus as my new Lord. Help me to have my mind renewed according to your word. Help me to listen to your still small voice and the gentle promptings of your gentlemanly spirit. Make me a new creature and help me shine for you like stars in a wicked and depraved generation. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.